Cats and Kittens, we are back with another very special stay-at-home, self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. And after all this goddamn time, I can't believe it. We've never talked about the most important band in the history of bands on this particular podcast. And that band would be Black Sabbath. Yeah, we haven't talked about Black Sabbath. We've done 60-plus shows so far on this stupid little experiment. Yet here we are, Black Sabbath today. So joining me, ho, 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 a man I'm such a fan of. You might know him as at Trumpet Cake on Twitter. You might know him as a writer, as an actor, and also a published fucking author. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me today to talk about my favorite band, it is none other than Mr. Ted Travelstead. Hello. <laughs> Gosh, you're good den, sir. How are you? <laughs> I'm very good. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Uh, I am very excited to have you, and most importantly because, now correct me if I'm wrong, I just had Wendy and Lizzie Molyneux on this particular podcast, the creators of The Great North, and I watched the first two episodes, and I believe I saw the words, Ted Travelstead, in the end credits. Is that true? It is true. It is true. I'm very uh, lucky to be working with those two genius people and uh, and a bunch of others. And yeah, I'm working on that show. You're writing on that show because I was going to say, I assume that you're not the, the office PA. You are actually writing on the Great North. Well, I do both. But, you know, um, no, there's actually much more uh, reliable, uh, better people uh, being office PAs than me, uh, just writing. So, yeah, <laughs> couldn't be luckier. Such a great gig, um, so fun. So, uh, but we've been uh, doing it from home since uh, last March. So that's been interesting. Obviously, this is your first writing experience solely on Zoom, correct? It is. It is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it takes me back to interviewing for my first writing job when I still lived in New York. Um, and I was talking to the guys out here uh, and we had to connect. It was very big at the time was the Blue Jeans uh, Network, which was uh, the, the video conferencing they did back then or they used back then before Zoom was popular. Um, and luckily, we're not we're using Blue Jeans for this particular um, job. Um, but I'm telling you, I mean, I am an exciting guest so far, right? Talking about uh, <laughs> different. <laughs> no, look, I, I'm in awe of anyone who gets to work. You're also working with two monsters. So I know that that's, uh, that's got to oh, be yeah. very difficult. <laughs> two mean, two mean sons of bitches, uh, Wendy and Lizzie Molyneux. <laughs> So mean. When you pitch, do you have to raise your little blue virtual hand in the uh, the chat feature of Zoom? <laughs> yes, uh, yes, virtual hand. Um, it's it's much like uh, you know if you ever heard stories about the Fraser writing room. Um, you know we have to have a fully formed pitch before we raise our virtual hand, um, and uh, you you must log off for ten minutes if you don't get any laughs. It's yeah, it's it's brutal. Tell me about. I don't know the Fraser writing staff lore. What is the Fraser writing staff lore? It's well, the lore was different than it was a little. It, I think it got you know exaggerated because I did actually work with some guys who uh, were in the Fraser writing room, and I don't think it was it wasn't as formal as they the rumors were. But it was very you know it was like it it seemed to be very formal as far as like at least the mythology around it was that you had to kind of like have a fully formed pitch before you spoke. And, you know, there was just a lot of kind of rules. I don't think it was quite that bad. <laughs> I worked on a TBS sitcom and for, uh, it was called my boys. And we actually shot for two different seasons on the Frasier set. So, uh, during wow. some downtime, during some downtime uh, at Paramount, of course, and during some downtime, my friends and I, uh, looked around the set, especially to the the weird dressing rooms they had on like the second level of that soundstage. I think it was stage 25 at Paramount. We were sure that we would find cocaine somewhere hidden from the Fraser <laughs> days. Uh, yeah, that didn't happen, huh? No, it, it, we, we found no cocaine. Speaking of cocaine, <laughs> sir, I am holding in my hand a ticket that says the following... Friday, September 9th, 2016, 7.30 p.m. at the Isleta Amphitheater in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Black Sabbath. Wow. That's the last time that I saw this fucking band live and in person. So, 
Black Sabbath were an English rock band formed in Birmingham in 1968 by guitarist Tony Iommi, drummer Bill Ward, bassist Geezer Butler, and vocalist Ozzy Osbourne. They are often cited as the pioneers of heavy metal music. The band helped define the genre with releases such as Black Sabbath, Paranoid, and Master of Reality. The band had multiple lineup changes following Osborne's departure in 1979, with Oni Iommi being the only constant member throughout the band's history. Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath all day. I was so excited when I asked you to throw out a, a, a band topic for the show. Please tell me what Black Sabbath means to you. It's funny. The only time I've gotten to see them was, I think it was 2016 as well. It was the end tour, right? Yes. It, and I saw them at the Hollywood Bowl. And um, it was uh, it was amazing. It was amazing. But I mean, my history with them goes back to being sixth, seventh grade. It, it's funny because I, I really prefer the Aussie kind of through 1979 years up until 79 with Ozzy because as a vocalist he really strikes a chord with me but I think like but I remember like kind of being introduced I mean of course I'd heard them I think like Mob Rules which is post Ozzy was like I just remember that album cover and I think that got me like going back further in the catalog and of course Ozzy solo stuff Blizzard of Oz was like a huge part of my uh, junior high experience um and so then it was just kind of going back from there and then i don't know so it's a, been a constant presence in my life i guess well let, let me just say this because the history of black sabbath is so vast and important i have only chosen to focus on the original ozzy years so i'm not going to go past uh, 79 into the dio years for those of you listening to the podcast, if you want to hear about the Dio years, listen to the my podcast chat with Mr. Kevin Christie, where we got into Ronnie James oh, Dio. Very nice. Now, now, you said that Sabbath sort of came into your consciousness sometime around sixth or seventh grade, middle school. Where was middle school for you? <laughs> well, this is another link we have. I have. Um, I went. I'm from Albuquerque, but it, it's strange. My it was always a, a kind of a baseline, but we moved around a lot. So for the first like three or four years of my life, I was in Albuquerque, and then we we moved to Philly, and then we moved back to Albuquerque, and then we moved to Virginia, then we moved back to Albuquerque. And so for fifth and sixth grade, I was in Albuquerque, and I went to like Bandelier Elementary for a year, and then I was at Jefferson um, Middle School. And then for seventh and eighth grade, I was in New Hampshire. So that was an abrupt kind of change in geography but i but i got like i had an older sister and so she you know she was listening to music that brought me into kind of the orbit of things but then like seventh and eighth grade being in this weird dark ass coastal new england town was a real heavy metal kind of experience and then i moved from there to virginia beach for high school and that was like suddenly a, like punk rock surf but i'd say black sabbath came to my consciousness around sixth grade and then more so into seventh grade when i moved uh, to new england um, well let me just say this i've said it on the podcast a billion times uh i moved to my family moved to albuquerque new mexico uh in the summer of 1980 uh i was in sixth grade about to start seventh grade wow. and 94 rock and rock 108 in uh, the summer of 1980, it is Sabbath, 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 ACDC, Rush, Van Halen, Sabbath, 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 and then Solo Ozzy. And I remember I I won, I just remember when Blizzard of Oz came out at the New Mexico State Fair, I tried to win the Ozzy Osbourne Blizzard of Oz Coke mirror <sighs> by, by throwing darts at a little star. Uh, I didn't win it, but the next year I won a Quiet Riot uh, Metal Health Coke Mirror. Oh, but uh, wow. New Mexico loves Sabbath. New Mexico loves Ozzy. If anyone lives in Albuquerque for two minutes, you're going to get injected with a little sabotage. So that's all I'm going to say about that. You know, what's funny is I, I won a uh, Lonnie Anderson poster um, throwing uh, darts at a balloon. But it was at... Um, 
Uncle Cliff's, which is now Cliff's Amusement Park, which I'm you I'm sure familiar with if you were you know there back then. Um, I am I am smiling. Uncle Cliff's was this bizarre. I guess you could call it an amusement park. It, it was almost like a permanent carnival on San Mateo Boulevard. It yeah. was almost it was almost like a church parking lot carnival with a little bit better rides. Yeah, it was like a miniature amusement park or something. Yeah, like slash you know parking lot carnival, but with a gate around it. But I remember going to the State Fair and Tingley Coliseum for concerts. Um, in fact, my first concert ever was. Well, other than like the rodeo, because the rodeo was at the state fairgrounds and they would have, um, I remember seeing like as a young kid, like a uh, like Charlie pride and like those kind of acts in between like Bronco bus. <laughs> but like my first actual concert was at Tingley Coliseum was uh, sixth grade 38 special. And I think a, a band called prism opened up for him. And then I remember my sister's boyfriend's car's battery got stolen. So we were like waiting around in the parking lot of Tingley Coliseum for like an hour, which is just post 38 special concert, probably not the best environment for a sixth grader. But uh, let me read some Sabbath history and then I'm going to come right back to the parking lot of Tingley Coliseum because it's a, it is a colossal part of my existence. After previous incarnations where the group called themselves the Polka Talk Blues Band and also Earth, the band settled on the name Black Sabbath in 1969. They also distinguished themselves from other psychedelic-era British acts by recording songs filled with occult themes and horror-inspired lyrics and tuned-down guitars. Signing to Phillips Records in the UK, Sabbath released their first single, Evil Woman, in January of 1970. Their debut album, Black Sabbath, was released the following month. Though it received a negative critical response, the album was a commercial success. Quick note, in December of 1968, Tony Iommi abruptly left Sabbath to join Jethro Tull, and he even made an appearance with Jethro Tull on the Rolling Stones' Rock and Roll Circus TV show. Unsatisfied with the direction of Jethro Tull, Iomi returned to Sabbath by the end of the month. That's just a little fun note for me. Thank God Tony stayed in Sabbath and he didn't stay in Tull. Now, Tingley Coliseum. And I apologize for those of you who listen to this podcast regularly because it comes up all the time. Because... <laughs> For me, from seventh grade until I left uh, college in what would have been the summer of 1986, the late summer of 1986, I basically saw every show at Tingley. My mom was super strict, but somehow I was allowed to go to metal shows. And so during that time, I just, I was able to see everything. And I'm so grateful and fortunate for that. In the early days, and I think you might remember this, it was easy for us to, before we drove, you could take the city bus to the state fairgrounds because it was smack dab, it was smack dab in the middle of Albuquerque. I lived near Sandia High School. Uh, I went to the academy, but I grew up by Sandia High School. And so the Candelaria, Wyoming to the state fairgrounds, it's basically 15 minutes on the bus. And then our mom would often pick us up at the McDonald's uh, by the state fairground, which was on San Pedro and Lomas. So that was our move. But then, of course, when everyone starts to drive in Albuquerque, I think the, uh, the driving age is 12. Uh, <laughs> some, someone's older brother or sister was always uh, driving to Tingley. I remember getting stuck in the parking lot of Tingley after the Scorpions Love at First Sting show, because I think that like someone had like literally destroyed one of the side entrance gates, basically locking thousands and thousands of stoned Albuquerqueans in the parking lot. <laughs> it's I wish I I and like I said, like since I was like I would move away and come back, I have these I didn't have a a solid history of seeing shows at Tingley, but I would drop in like at different stages of my life. Like then I remember seeing like in excess with like steel pulse opening up. Um, and like one of the Ferris brothers, like kicked a guy in the face from the audience. And like it just always, there's just always rowdy memories from, from Tingley Coliseum. But yeah, the fact that you could go like who goes to a concert in sixth grade, like, I don't know, just something about back then, 
I don't remember seeing a lot of shows in New England, but then moving to Virginia Beach from ninth grade to the end of high school, it was all similar. Like there was the Norfolk Scope and Hampton Coliseum, which are both kind of like similar venues to Tingley in that area, in the Tidewater area. And it was just one show after the other, just being dropped off in the parking lot by a friend's mom, you know, and then being picked up. I don't know. It's very fond memories of that kind of musical history through concerts as a teen. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to bore you with Albuquerque and I'm not going to bore the the audience with Albuquerque because they've heard it a thousand times in this fucking show. But the reason that I have this black Sabbath uh, ticket from 2016 is in, in recent years, I have loved going back to Albuquerque uh, specifically to see Iron Maiden a few times with my friends from high school and the, the last time Sabbath played, we, we chose to go see Sabbath because for me, it's like being in a time warp because the, the, the crowds in New Mexico, it's very specific. For me, it was always a third white, a third New Mexican, and a third Native American. And that is such a unique crowd and a cultural experience. Like three groups come together to nerd out for ACDC, Rush, Dio, Ozzy, Metallica, and I got that so much with this last sabbath show in albuquerque it was so fucking fun even though it wasn't a tingly it was at a, the the big outdoor as led amphitheater at the time it was the albuquerque journal pavilion i'm envious of that i i didn't get that um as much but th- yeah that blending is is really nice well when i moved from when i moved when my family moved to albuquerque in 1980 you know i'm 12 years old and we we moved from pittsburgh and so it was a cultural, it was a shock. I think I was like in shock for like five or six months after we moved there. Cause you know, it, it's not a city. It's, it's almost like the San Fernando Valley with a little downtown area. Mm-hmm. Um, but culturally, you know, in Pittsburgh, you've got, you know, all kinds of different people in Albuquerque. It ain't like that at all. You know, it's basically three groups. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that it was a, just a real shock, but, but going to metal shows was a big part of my existence. All right. Enough about that uh take me back to uh some of your other early other bands that you were into uh, as a young dude i rush like the whole kind of heavy metal gamut i remember it's 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 funny thinking like listening back at to certain albums at the time that were mind-blowing i was thinking the other day about judas priest and um the first time i heard british steel was in seventh grade in new hampshire at this kid ricky's house (laughs) and i i just remember thinking like what is this man this is so hard this is so like hardcore i love it like and then like it just seems so kind of tame now you know but like at the time i mean that's the beauty of kind of yeah it was like judas priest rush and then it was like this slow kind of morphing into the police oh and well before that there was queen there was blue oyster cult and then when i moved to virginia beach it started to open these horizons to kind of new wave and like the police and then like punk rock you know and then it was just like minor threat black flag agent orange all these like kind of surf rock and punk rock and and then all that took me to right back into loving like black sabbath again which was kind of where it all started so what's uh, what's virginia beach all about well, uh, it is, it's a very touristy place, um, but it's, but it's a bigger city. So it's not like a little tourist town, but it does definitely have like this kind of atmosphere of it's got a boardwalk and a tourist area and, and does become more popular in the summer. But then, but living there year round, like it was interesting to be in a coastal place other than New England that actually was a little more temperate and just had of the lifestyle of like surfing and skating and punk rock and all that stuff, which I feel like New Hampshire was leagues behind as far as that goes. And so it was being thrust into this world of that. I just, I loved man, skateboarding, surfing. And then I just started surfing and surfed well through college until I moved to New York. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of a dream. My mom still lives there. And um, I, I love going back. I mean, I love going back to New Mexico but I also love going back to Virginia beach and they're kind of for different reasons, but they're also for the same kind of nostalgia in the same way as well. Home is fucking important. Sabbath returned to the studio in June of 1970, just four months after black Sabbath was released. 
The new album was initially set to be named War Pigs after the song War Pigs, which was critical of the Vietnam War. However, Warner Brothers changed the title of the album to Paranoid. More importantly, the album's lead-off single, also named Paranoid, was written in the studio at the very last minute. We didn't have enough songs for the album, said Bill Ward, and Tony just played the guitar lick, and that was it. It took 20, 25 minutes from top to bottom. Paranoid was released in September of 1970 and reached number four on the UK singles chart. The album of the same name was released right after that and went to number one on the British charts. Memorable songs from this masterpiece include War Pigs, Hand of Doom, Electric Funeral, and Iron Man. They created a masterpiece song in 20, 25 minutes. The best. You know, there's a whole occult theme and like Black Sabbath and devil worship and stuff. But like so much of Geezer Butler's lyrics, you know, are political stuff and like, uh, and then whenever you, you know, it's just, it's a lot smarter than people give it credit for. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just actually hippie themes with really fucking evil music. Yeah, exactly. That, that war pigs, war pigs, generals gathered in their masses, just like witches at black masses, evil yeah. minds that plot plot destruction, sorcerers of death's construction. It's just hippie stuff. Exactly. And in fact, and like if you listen to live the live shows, you know, it's like it's all really like about love. Like Ozzy, I love you. I fucking love you. You know, and and it's just so much more positivity than like I think they get credit for. In fact, it, and there is even some like hippie kind of jams. If you listen to Sabotage, which is like their sixth album. I think it's a song sabotage. At the end, it just—it's like this hard riffing song, but then at the end, it goes into this like acoustic kind of jam, like for a few minutes, where it's just like, "What is happening?" But I—I I love it. Well, I love it too, and I'll say this: here's my my the reason that I think I love Sabbath so much is because around seventh eighth grade, I think, is when most people start to choose the music that they're gonna listen to, because like fifth and sixth grade you're still listening to the music that the older kids are listening to and this the pop hits of the day that are out yeah. there but then when you start to get your own tastes my taste was so sort of forged in fire because i wasn't the smartest i wasn't good looking i wasn't the best athlete you know i went to a really fucking competitive high school so i i needed something and i think the fact that um I loved devil music and I loved feeling like I had the power of Satan uh, within me coursing through my veins by listening to Sabbath and Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. Um, It just gave me enough confidence to walk through the fucking halls of the Albuquerque Academy uh, with. And, And that's why I loved it so much. And I just loved, I remember going to school wearing the tour shirt from the mob rules show at Tingley and it's you know it smells a little bit of weed yeah, yeah. and you know all the other kids around me are wearing op and uh alexander julian and polo stuff and uh, i wasn't a pot smoker at all i wasn't i wasn't allowed to do that i had to keep my nose clean to be able to go to all those shows but you know just having the power of devil with you it's like a really fucking important energy to get through high school you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think you have to have something to, you know, feel like something has your back, you know, and if that has to be the devil, then, you know, so be it. But yeah, I mean, I, the Academy, um, that you didn't have to wear a uniform, right? I guess not. No, academy. we did. We did not have to wear a uniform, but my uniform was uh, gap cords, either silver, uh, navy, sometimes brown and a concert shirt. That is how I walked through the world. Because again, that was an ultra competitive high school. Everyone was good looking, rich, and and, and a yeah. good athlete. And yeah, I just didn't feel like I was any of those things. So I needed something, you know, to give me the power and the power of Satan. <laughs> the power of Satan compels you. <laughs> Wait, did you wear uh, chucka boots or uh, just no sneakers? Nike Cortez? Oh, nice. I had a friend who lived near the Academy and we used to, and he had a go-kart and we used to go and ride his motorized go-kart. Like there was these, there was this kind of weird little Mesa area right outside of the Academy that we would like, like ride all through there. 
And then one time the clutch broke and we had to push it all the way home. But <laughs> Did he live happened. in that neighborhood behind the Safeway there on uh, on on uh, on on Academy in Wyoming? He it was not far from there. It was yeah, he lived on a street called Leander and I remember I mean it was within walking distance. There was like a Dion's Pizza. Oh yeah, that's like, yeah. So that right, and the Safeway was next to the Dion. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah not um, to nerd out. Sorry people, but Dion's Pizza you said the two words that just make my heart sink, Ted. Dion's Pizza is the best fucking pizza in America, especially if you're getting fucking green chili, pepperoni pizza, yeah. Dion's. That's all that I need, and Daddy is happy. Dude, I miss that food so much. I was lucky enough to be back in Santa Fe uh, uh, over Labor Day weekend, and anytime I go to New Mexico, the first things that I have to do, Blake's Lotta Burger yes. or a green chili, uh, green chili cheeseburger, yes. uh, the Frontier Restaurant in Albuquerque. Oh, my God, dude. I, I'm just going to say that, like, the front, because I lived my whole family, like the university in New Mexico, was like that was my my granddad was like the dean of education there. So like that was we lived near, not far from UNM, and like my, you know, fifth and sixth grade years was just like biking around, you know, going to the student union building arcade, like getting beat up in the student union building arcade. Yeah, <laughs> but like the frontier, like Nunzio's Pizza, like yeah, and again, I'm sure your listeners are you know have heard a lot about albuquerque but i could nerd out, out on it for a while because uh i have so many fond memories of, of it as a kid but yeah the food i mean the food is it's huge you know there was a um el patio was a restaurant down by uh that like there's stuffed sopapillas like you know, green chili enchiladas good god i mean it really is it's brings me to tears you know for if you're traveling through new mexico people here are brendan's picks Duran's Pharmacy, Frontier, Los Guates, Marion Tito's on 4th Street, of course El Patio, and most importantly, Sadie's of New Mexico. God damn it. <laughs> In February of 1971, Black Sabbath returned to the studio to begin work on their third album. Following the chart successes of Paranoid, the band were afforded more studio time along with, quote-unquote, a briefcase full of cash to buy drugs. We were getting into coke big time, Ward explained. Uppers, downers, quaaludes, whatever you like. It got to the stage where you come up with ideas and forget them immediately because you were so out of it. The band released Master of Reality in July of 1971. The album reached the top 10 in the U.S. and in the U.K. and was certified gold in less than two months. It contained Sabbath's first acoustic songs, alongside fan favorites such as Children of the Grave and Sweet Leaf. Though they probably should have taken a longer break right after the tour for Master of Reality, the band trudged on and went back to work on their fourth studio record, which Warner Brothers ultimately named Volume 4. While critics were initially dismissive of the record, Volume 4 achieved gold status in less than a month and was the band's fourth consecutive release to sell a million copies in the U.S. Touring and heavy drug use followed. That's the Cool Guy Records, Black Sabbath, Volume 4. Like, I feel like you can throw that down in conversation, and that's, uh, that's the uh, the intellectuals Black Sabbath record. <laughs> yeah, but I, Master of Reality, I think, was... I could be wrong, but it, I think it was the first lab, uh, album that, hit, that Tony did the down-tuning on, partly because it was less painful him for him to play because you know he had the the factory accident that severed his fingertips but i think um i i had read that like he had down it his guitar for that reason and then also to produce that heavier bigger heavier sound or whatever do you dabble in uh, in guitar because you you were just doing a guitar motion with your hands <laughs> i have yes i've dabbled a guitar and i've played in bands and um yeah, all that kind of home recording, all that okay, stuff. Okay, well, well, tell me about all that. What was your first band, and how old were you? Well, in g g high school, I bought a bass guitar and tried to be in a punk band um, with this kid. With, well, one of my best friends, but then there was this kid, Skip, at school who was like a straight-up thrash rock dude that actually was talented, and we were going to try to put together a band, but it required rehearsal and knowing how to play and those were things that uh 
like just didn't seem to have the time for it, you know. But I remember like trading like uh, a wetsuit for a base amp, like because like a surfing wetsuit for a base amp, and like just trying to trying to get to a place where. But none of the real kind of real. St- and then you know, then in college, I was interested in playing guitar, and so I had a roommate who played, and he would show me like he showed me a bunch of Rush songs, and then eventually I got to a place where. By the end of college, I really was kind of interested in it. And then I moved to New York and some people were looking for a bass player for their band. And so I joined this band and actually could kind of play and played out a lot. And then like we recorded an album and then, of course, we broke up at right after recording an album. But then it was like playing, you know, like then I got together with other people, but it's always been a hobby more than anything. You know, it was never something I was like, I'm going to be a rock star. It's all just like rock and roll fantasy camp in your twenties when you can play with other people and play at home. And yeah. Quick question. Is a bass amp worth a wetsuit or vice versa? (laughs) I think it seems like at the time it was a pretty good trade, but I, you know, if I'm thinking like a good bass amp is going to be, I probably got the better end of the deal because a wetsuit, I mean, back then was like a hundred or 150 bucks. You know, now it's a little more, a bass amp is going to be a few hundred dollars if it's any good. So I think, I think I got the better end of the deal. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What was the name of that band? The band in New York was uh, called super 16. Shout out to my friend, Scott Schneider. It was kind of his band. So I didn't really do any of the songwriting or anything like that, but uh, I had a blast. We played at like these, just you know, like the Pyramid Club down in the East Village. We played at like this, there was a play a club on Houston called AKA, which we played in a few times, a club called The Cooler. Um, and, you know, did it for like a year. And it was, it was awesome. It was great you know, to be in New York and play in a band and never, and not really have any aspirations of like other people might've had bigger aspirations. I was just happy to be there. there. Did you guys make more than beer money? Uh, Not, not much more. Um, Yeah. I don't remember having to chip in a lot of money to, because we, we actually did record in a studio. I mean, we granted it was a studio in a guy's house in Brooklyn, but he was an actual, you know, like you had to pay money for studio time. And I don't remember, I think some of our recording out might've played paid for that type of stuff. But, um, but no, I was not making a living by any means in this. I had a day job uh, all through that time. What was that day job? Oh God. For the, for the, I was a messenger for the first uh, 10 years that I lived in New York. I worked as a messenger for financial, uh, for foreign currency exchange. Um, so I carried money around the city, uh, and I did not, I was not a cool messenger on a bike. I was, I was a foot messenger. And then eventually I was, I got moved up to dispatcher, (laughs) but I had health insurance and it, and I had, you know, it afforded me the opportunity to, to do other things, which are, you know, acting and writing and all the things I wanted to do. Um, but, and then we briefly, my wife and I, and I met my wife and I got married in 2001 and then we moved to LA in 2004, we moved to LA for a year because I had written briefly for an animated sketch show on VH1 while I was in New York, and the but the room was in LA, and I thought, oh, I've done some TV writing. I, I you know, it should be easy to drum up some work uh, once I get out to LA. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a good hustler, so I ended up working. Uh, we moved here in 2004, and I worked at Barnes and Noble in the Grove. For, uh, about a year while my wife worked at USC. And then a good buddy of mine, Mike Sachs, uh, was working at Vanity Fair at the time. He was like, dude, you should come back here. They need somebody for two months. So I went back to New York and worked in the research department of Vanity Fair for two months. And then they were like, hey, you just you want to stay on? And so we moved back to New York. <clears throat> and I worked at Vanity Fair as a fact checker for seven years uh, before moving back to LA. Uh, literally doing fact checking on the important articles that they were throwing up. Yes, the important articles and anything. But yeah, uh, you know, if you were lucky, you got it varied from month to month. Sometimes you get one big piece, sometimes you get uh, a few smaller pieces. But yeah, basically, yeah, just 
fact checking. Um, and I, I was the best day job I've ever had. It was, it was great because it was really, everybody's really, it was the most account, accountable I'd ever been in a job because, you know, you don't, you can, you don't want to screw up when it comes to that kind of thing. I had a day job at Jewish Big Brothers of, uh, of Los Angeles. That was uh, one of my many day jobs here. I've had about 60 because uh, I've been here for 30 goddamn, thir- almost 31 goddamn years. So there's wow. been a horrible slew of all kinds of crazy I- bullshit. Yes, I can relate. Black Sabbath hit the studio for their fifth album in the summer of 1973. After a month in Los Angeles with no results, the band returned to England and rented the Clearwell Castle in the Forest of Dean, hoping that the castle's creepy atmosphere would spark something in the band. While working in the dungeon, Iomi stumbled onto the main riff of the song, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath which set the tone for the new material on the album of the same name. That album marked the band's fifth consecutive platinum-selling album in the U.S. More touring and heavy drug use followed. The band also switched management in 1974 and went to work with the notorious Don Arden, who also had a young daughter named Sharon. Sabbath began work on the sixth record in February of 1975 with the decisive vision to differ the sound from Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. Sabotage was released in July of 1975. Rolling Stone stated, Sabotage is not only Black Sabbath's best record since Paranoid, it might be their best ever. Although later reviewers noted that the magical chemistry that made such albums as Paranoid and Volume 4 so special was beginning to disintegrate. And that chemistry was disintegrating because of touring and drugs. So much to uh, to unpack there. I love the idea that Sabbath had to leave L.A. because the trappings of L.A. was too much for the band to get work done. So they had to rent a goddamn castle in England to get the next record done. I love how every, every kind of chapter of the Sabbath is like, more touring and heavy drug use followed. Like, <laughs> it's just like that is that's my little embellishment, but that's it's the story of Sabbath. It's oh, but it's yeah, absolutely Sabbath. no embellishment uh, required. I mean, that's just that seems to be facts. If you just kind of look at uh, at at the trajectory of, I mean, just yeah, of drug use and and whatnot, and and even into Ozzy's solo career, and uh, you know, Randy Rhodes' death and. Um, just all that this stuff connected to being uh, inebriated well as a mega fan when i first moved to la my friends and i moved to hollywood uh in the fall of 1990 right after college we all moved out here together and we got a big house on uh, near fountain and fairfax and so for me being near the sunset strip as a metal fan it was almost it was almost like mecca that I had to go and I had to see the places that I knew my heroes had frequented. I had to go to the Rainbow. I had to go yeah. to Gil, Gil Turner's liquor store on Doheny and Sunset because I knew that that's where Ozzy lost his fucking mind when he was living in a bullshit little apartment around there after being kicked out of Sabbath and ordering liquor from Gil Turner's night after night after night after night. Seeing Lemmy Kilmeister in Book Soup sometime in 1991. Maybe 1992 was like my, a mind-blowing experience for me because he lived around the corner from Book Soup and he went in there all the time. Um, that's one of my favorite things about living in L.A. is that you know we're constantly surrounded by all of these images and places that we grew up watching or hearing about. You know, the idea of Black Sabbath renting a house somewhere in Bel Air to try to get work done and not getting any work done just because they were part. <laughs> Partying in a house in Bel Air, not a spot that I would pick to to work in uh, a house in Bel Air, but that's what they were fucking doing back then. Yeah, it's it's funny to hear you. I I don't have the same uh, history with L.A. It, it's a much more East Coast, but you know, in college or later, watching like um, Decline of the Western Civilization Part Two, and just you know, seeing all that mayhem and all that Sunset Strip uh, stuff was just fascinating to me and then even part one which was you know very la centric with the punk movement but yeah we got here when my friends and i got here i think i've said this on the podcast before so if you're playing the the game of the brando cast it's time to drink because i'm going to talk about it again 
So the, the, the fall of 1990 is not too far removed from 1988 decline of Western civilization part two. But by the time we got here, the strip had turned really cheesy. Like it was all hair metal. Every band wanted to be the next warrants rather than the next Motley Crue or even the next Metallica. Like it, the, uh, the sunset strip was cheesy, 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 cheesy. And it was kind of dying. The coconut teaser was still open on the corner of, of uh, Crescent Heights and, and Sunset. And we would go there because they had ridiculous free happy hour food. They had like decent hot dogs and decent hamburgers uh, for free. But, uh, you know, but it was, but it was still exciting for me uh, to be here. When do you really start doing, this is a horrible segue. It's not even a segue. <laughs> I'm just going to make a really sharp left term. When do you start performing comedy in New York City? So I graduated in college in 90. And then in 93, uh, moved to New York. I did an internship at a theater up in New England for a year before that. And then uh, moved to New York with and started a theater company with some friends. With And I wanted to act. And um, so we did that for a while. That's where I kind of started writing because I was trying to write like original material for the theater company. And then like it just kind of just did stuff on my own. It didn't do really, that disbanded pretty quickly. And it wasn't until like 96, seven, eight, that I got involved with another group of people uh, that, and we started doing sketch. And so did sketch for a couple of years around the city. And then that kind of fell out again and was writing, doing more writing, writing books and doing other comedy writing. And then, um, <clears throat> and then it wasn't until like 2000, sometime in the late 2000s where I thought I'd like to try stand-up because I've always been terrified of it. So I did that for a couple years around the city. Not, uh, you know, a lot, but a lot for me, which was maybe like a couple times a week, you know, um, but it was cool. It was, it was, it was fun to do. Then I got a job out here and we, we said we'll never move back to LA unless I actually had a job and I got a job writing on a show, um, the show Wilfred. And so we moved out here for that in 2013. And I did stand up a couple of times when I moved out here, but then quickly fell off because it just wasn't, I love it. It's fun, but I don't love it to the point of like, I'm going to drive, get like face LA traffic and parking and then wait around for two hours to do a 12 minute, you know, I, I, I actually, I did dip my toe in the stand up world. Again, people listening to the podcast have heard this a million times before, but I did do a little bit of did do a little bit of Largo in the nineties. Nice, did a little bit of Comedy Store and and improv on Melrose and blah blah blah. But the driving around and doing it every night, I was like, "You lunatics! Why do you? Why, why would you do that? Like doing yeah. it like once a month is like all you need to do. Why? And then why would you want to like go drive to the Ice House in Pasadena and then go do some dumb show in Westwood? Like, are you fucking crazy?" Yeah, you have to be really driven uh, uh, to 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 want to do that, and it was much easier in New York, in a way, to like to be within walking distance of different places if you want to, or just jump on the train, I, you know, to one place or the other if you wanted to perform more than one place in a night. Uh, it just seemed a hell of a lot easier. Oh, dude, <laughs> fuck yeah. <laughs> Technical Ecstasy was released in September of 1976. In his autobiography, I Am Ozzy, Ozzy admitted he considered leaving the band during this time. And I'm not going to do my Ozzy Osbourne impersonation for you people. I'd even had a t-shirt made with Blizzard of Oz written on the front. Meanwhile, in the studio, Tony was always saying, we've got to sound like Foreigner, or we've got to sound like Queen. But I thought it was strange that the bands we'd once influenced were now influencing us. Osborne also wrote that he lost the plot with booze and drugs during the recording of Technical Ecstasy, eventually checking himself into the Stafford County Asylum on his return to England. Ozzy did not leave Sabbath, though. Never Say Die was released in September of 1978 and was the last studio album with the band's original lineup. Touring in support of Never Say Die actually began in May of 1978, and Sabbath's opening act was a young and hungry band from Pasadena. Reviewers called Black Sabbath's performance tired and uninspired and a stark contrast to the youthful performance of Van Halen. The final show of the tour and Osborne's last appearance with the band until the later reunions 
was on December 11th in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Following the tour, Black Sabbath returned to Los Angeles and rented another house in Bel Air where they spent nearly a year working on new material for their next record. The entire band were abusing both alcohol and other drugs, but Iommi says Osborne was on a totally different level altogether. Sabbath ultimately fired Ozzy in April of 1979. Don Arden's daughter Sharon had already brought former Rainbow singer Ronnie James Dio into the band's world to help with writing, and Ronnie officially took over on lead vocals in June of that year. The rest is Sabbath history. As uh, my dog barks in the background, Ted, may I bore you with one final Black Sabbath story? Yeah. God damn it, bro. <laughs> bro. I'm going to bore you with one final Sabbath story, and that is the story of David Lee Roth and Ozzy Osbourne doing so much cocaine in Memphis, Tennessee, that Ozzy missed the next night in Nashville because he made it to Nashville, but he still had a room key from the Marriott or Holiday Inn wherever they were staying in Memphis. The hotel looked the same, so he barged his way into the, like, let's call it room 616 or something like that. Ozzy was in the wrong room, and he went to sleep for 18 hours. So when they went to check on him in his real room, he wasn't there, and he missed the show. And that's what a fuck-up Ozzy was on the Never Say Die Tour. Again, now he's about to get kicked out of the band, and he's going to live in a little bullshit apartment just south of Sunset near Gil Turner's. So, so that's where, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was an absolute mess, but just the idea of Ozzy and David Lee Roth staying up, well, not even staying, it's not even, I don't even know if you can call that staying up, just the thought of David Lee Roth and Ozzy Osbourne going toe-to-toe together uh, across a mound of cocaine is uh, pretty fucking special to me. I saw uh, Van Halen with David Lee Roth um, in ninth grade, it, at the Hampton Coliseum, uh, I'm pretty sure, in Virginia area. And what was funny, which makes me think of this, um, how little I really kind of knew about drugs at the time. Or, um, my a good friend's brother was a guitar, was a bass tech for Michael Anthony. Um, so they got to go, like, they got to go backstage and, like, sit, you know, in special seats or whatever and inter- interact with the band. And me and another schmuck friend were just there as regular concert goers. But uh, afterwards, uh, my buddy was like, yeah, they were pretty mellow tonight, man. Um, they just did way too much cocaine. Like, <laughs> 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 and we were like, oh, yeah, yeah. So mellow, man. They must have been, they just must have done too much cocaine. Um, which yeah, goes to show you. Um, I'm glad I didn't know a lot about cocaine in ninth grade. On uh, I do a serious show on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106 with Mr. Ahmet Zappa, and we had Stephen Piercy from Rat about a year ago. Oh wow. <laughs> and he told us the following story, which was back in the day, Gazaris on Sunset, which is heavily featured in Decline of Western Civilization Part 2. Gazaris had like VIP rooms within VIP rooms and secret doors that led to secret rooms. And one night in a secret room, it was just him, Ozzy, David Lee Roth, doing cocaine and talking about aerobics. <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, think about the level of, of aerobic exercise you could, you could get after. There was also other sorts of aerobic exercise happening in that room at the same time. Uh, I won't say anything about that, but I, I just wow. one of my, was that was one of my, it was the, my favorite story that Stephen Piercy told when we sat down with him. All right, Ted, as we round third base here and we're wrapping things up on the Brando cast, <laughs> is there anything else you want to say about Black Sabbath other than they're the most important band in the history of bands? Gosh, well, I, they are the most important band in the history of bands. I think that was, you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, I just love them. And I'm going to be like really bummed out when the inevitable day comes, you know, that they're the members aren't around anymore. Um, I have said, I have said many times, every time we lose a Neil Peart, an Eddie Van Halen, uh, I say, get a team of doctors up to Ozzy and Sharon's house right now and make sure that that man gets the care and the treatment that he needs for anything. 
I don't care what it is. A common cold, yeah. COVID-19, whatever. Ozzy must be kept uh, alive because I'm going to lose my shit when he uh, leaves this mortal coil. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, not to end on a doubt, but he's, he's brought me so much joy uh, throughout my life that um, I only hope that when he does go, it is uh, it is peacefully and joyfully, I guess. Yeah, I, I should just shut up. They're, they're a great band. Black Sabbath. I hope you have a peaceful and joyful experience on the Great North. It's an oh. incredible show. I watched the first two episodes that were available out there in the world. I just wish you nothing but continued success on that show because I think it's going to be around for a long goddamn time. Uh, well, thank you. I love it. It's been great to work on and so much fun. And I'm really glad that people are enjoying it. And yeah, it'd be great to keep it going for as long as possible. Okay, don't fuck it up. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> uh, final question. Is there a Black Sabbath song that I can play us out with tonight? A, a favorite Black Sabbath song of yours? Yes, it is Symptom of the Universe. Dude, big bong hit. <laughs> and a fuck yeah, bro. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for playing the game of the Brandocast with me today. It was an honor and a delight to meet you via the power of Squadcast. Dude, it was my pleasure. Thank you, man. So much fun. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, subscribing, telling your friends about the BrandoCast. We are growing exponentially, and we've got so many great shows coming down the pike. And, of course, the BrandoCast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens, 